Well, uh, I add fourth Sunday in Advent greetings to all of you, and finally, uh, maybe you wouldn't say finally, but we have some nice, brisk December, appropriately uh, Christmas weather uh, at last. Uh, last weekend, the uh, first installment of J.R.R. Tolkien's uh, novel, The Hobbit, rolled out as a a major motion picture and made a, a fairly big splash at the box office. Uh, as, as you may or may not know, Tolkien was part of a fairly uh, small, um, elite little fraternity of, of novelists who all had two things in common. Uh, C.S. Lewis, who wrote The Chronicles of Narnia, uh, Kurt Vonnegut Jr., who wrote Slaughterhouse-Five, William Golding, who wrote The Lord of the Flies, and George Orwell, who wrote Animal Farm, were all uh, men who were severely injured in combat, most of them in World War I, although Vonnegut was, was injured and one of the very few to survive the bombing of Dresden. Um, they were all severely wounded in combat, and they all went on to write um, epic, sort of best-selling, classic works about the struggle between good and evil. And they all found that they were unable to write directly about their own experiences. And the only way they could talk about this struggle, of good and evil, the only way they could talk about how horrible and insidious evil was, was to do so through metaphor and symbolism and fiction and other accounts. Tolkien, um, who spent the rest of his life writing uh, and creating this whole alternate world, Middle-earth, The Hobbit was a prequel to the Lord of the Rings trilogy, of which there are six books. I, I've never quite understood why they call it a trilogy, but there are six books in the Lord of the Rings uh, work, and then uh, the Silmarillion is in essence sort of a Bible for that world. He created, he created characters and, and actually beings. He created uh, hobbits and orcs. He, he invented three languages, invented languages for these worlds. He, um, uh, he, he you know, weaves this fascinating mythology that is behind it that most people know nothing about. And I occasionally have given lectures on Tolkien because I'm so frustrated that people go to the movies and talk about the amazing special effects and, and miss the message. Uh, Tolkien and Lewis were very deliberately trying to smuggle truth under the radar. They tell us this. And they are, they are painting a world that is informed by their Christian faith. So Tolkien, for instance, divides the offices of Christ between prophet, priest, and king. He divides them between Gandalf and Frodo and the returning king, Aragorn. And he, you know, he uses the ring to represent power, which initially is good and helpful, but it tends to corrupt whoever holds on to it. And he has he has the heroes be the hobbits, the little halflings. They're, they're small and they're weak because he wants to make the point that evil cannot be overcome by more powerful evil. Uh, 
Uh, it, will, it will be overcome by sacrifice and weakness. And of course, all of this points back to Christ and to the way he came in humility and he suffers and he dies. So this unfolds, Tolkien worked on this for 30 years. He was a bright guy, a professor at Oxford. And so it, it is layered in ways that um, just are quite profound and you can spend a lot of time unpacking this. Um, I, I share about Tolkien uh, in part because this movie has just come out, but in part, again, because like Vonnegut Jr. with Slaughterhouse-Five and like William Golding with the Island of Boys who, who are going to have their own world and like Lewis with the Chronicles of Narnia and the Talking Animals, uh, they, they, or George Orwell and the Talking Pigs and Sheep, he, they're, they're going to... They're going to find it necessary to create an entirely different uh, palette uh, of descriptions, an entirely different blank canvas in which they are going to talk uh, about good and evil and how they unfold. And that actually happens in this book as well. The Christmas story, okay, the Christmas account, the claim that God becomes a man in order to rescue us. That, that the Logos, the second member of the, of the triune Godhead, Jesus, uh, before he becomes Jesus, who exists as eternity past as God, but does not hold on to the privileges and perks and powers of being God, but humbles himself and becomes one of us. The creator becomes part of the creation. right? That somehow... The, the deity adds humanity in order to live among us so that he can die for us. This Christmas story is reported most commonly in the, the beginning chapters of the Gospel of Luke and the beginning chapters of the Gospel of Matthew. So, if you are back tomorrow for our Christmas Eve services... They will open with some uh, readings that you know well, right? In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman Empire, right? And Joseph, who's going to have to go to Bethlehem, the, the, the birthplace of David, and he goes there with, his, with Mary, to whom he is betrothed to be married, and she is pregnant with child, right? We know the Luke 2 account of Christmas. That's the most common place we turn to understand what God did for us. Uh, there are Old Testament places where the story is told. Predictions about how it will unfold. We see this initially in Genesis 3, where, where we are told that, uh, that, that the, the woman will give birth to uh, a, her seed, to, to an heir who will rise up and attack evil. And evil will, will strike his heel, but he will crush evil's head. Right? That's the first telling of the Christmas story. We get it, uh, for instance, in Isaiah chapter 9. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Right? We've got this prophecy that comes out of Isaiah chapter 9. We've got it again in, in Micah chapter 5 where he says to you Bethlehem though you are least right a king will be born uh, to you one, one ancient uh, from before time will be born here in Bethlehem. So the Christmas story is reported in the Old Testament. 
it's reported in other places besides the gospel in the New Testament. I think one of the most magisterial is the, is the, is the hymn, perhaps the first uh, hymn that we have that is recorded by Paul when he writes to the Philippians from the jail cell in Rome. And he is describing Christ and he says, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. This is a description of the incarnation. Jesus, who is God, equal to the Father, always been God, at the incarnation becomes a man. He humbles himself to do that. The Christmas story is reported in various places in the New Testament. It is reported as well, as Wyeth has already mentioned, in Revelation chapter 12. This is a place you may not be particularly familiar with uh, or think about as being uh, the Advent story. But it's reported here in Revelation 12, and I want us to look at this today. It's a different camera angle. It's a, it's a different take. It's, it's a little bit of a, of a symbolic and, uh, well, it's, it's, it's just a very different look. Heaven's view on what happened. And we come away from, from the Christmas story as reported in the book of Revelation with a, a different take and a different understanding of what we're being told. And it comes across, really, as an act of war. Right? It is a bold initiative by God. Uh, it is... It is a counterattack. It is, it is a beachhead behind enemy lines that happens at the incarnation. And the good news is that uh, good wins. God wins. Christ prevails. Uh, and it's, it's a colorful picture. If you're not familiar with the book of Revelation, it is, of course, the last book in the Bible. And it is uh, an account largely... Uh, uh, a written account of a vision that was given to the Apostle John. A vision of heaven and of future things and of past things. So John is an apostle. He was, he was with Christ, saw the miracles, heard the teaching firsthand, was there uh, when everything goes south and Christ is crucified. He's one of the first to see the empty tomb. He will meet the resurrected Christ. He is there when... When he and all of us are commissioned with the good news, the, the mandate, go tell others, right, who I am and what I've done and teach them everything. So he's there for that commissioning. He becomes a leader in the church and he is persecuted. Now, unlike uh, the other remaining apostles, Judas, of course, has betrayed Christ and, and taken his own life. Unlike the other ten who will die as martyrs, John is not, we don't believe, martyred for his faith, but he is uh, persecuted, and he's eventually banished to the island of Patmos, which is uh, a small island to the west, uh, just a little island off the west coast of Turkey. Uh, you could think of it as a first century Alcatraz, and he is there, and he can no longer minister to the people that he wants to be with, but he can write. So he writes the Gospel of John, we have several of the letters that he wrote, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and we of course also have this last book, this, uh, this very symbolic book 
of the vision of heaven, the gospel, or excuse me, the, the book of Revelation, or the revelation of Jesus Christ. And we see, again, in this, we get pictures, we get symbols, we get pictures that are to help us understand other pictures that it gives us, uh, very symbolic, and part of what we get is, is looks ahead, looks into heaven, and looks back. And part of the flashback that is given to John is a flashback to the birth of Christ, which would have taken place about 80 years before he sees it. And it's recorded in Revelation chapter 12, uh, which is a, sort of the literary center of the book, a very important chapter. I'm going to read to you the first five verses. Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 through 5. A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven. An enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his heads. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. Hope that's clear for all of you. Um, <laughs> Merry Christmas. Uh, not quite the nativity scene that we're used to seeing. Uh, we will not understand everything that is going on here, but the big picture, I think, will become clear, and it becomes clearer when we identify the three main players. The first of the three is a woman who uh, is clothed with the sun, is using the moon as sort of a, a footstool, and who has a, a crown of 12 stars, and we're told that she is pregnant. Well, uh, throughout the last 2,000 years, various interpretations of who this woman is have been put forth. Some have said she is Eve. And again, back to this Genesis 3 uh, the prophecy that is given, right, that the, the heir, that a descendant of Eve, the, the seed of woman, which of course, again, is, is an indication of the virgin birth, the seed of woman will come and this will be the, the one who will defeat evil. Others have said that the woman represents Israel. And the idea here is that the 12 stars that make up her crown are indicative of the 12 tribes of Israel. You, you might remember in Genesis 12, God calls Abraham and says, through you I'm going to bless the world and carry out my plan through your descendants. And Abraham has a son, Isaac. Isaac has uh, twin boys, Esau and Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons and these 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel so there's some indication that that's what's being referred to here and there, there's additional support for this idea found in uh, Genesis 37 one of the 12 founders one of the 12 sons of Jacob is Joseph right um, and Joseph is the one who is sold by his brothers into slavery in in Egypt and if you 
only saw the, the musical, this is the Donny Osmond character, um, if that helps. So Joseph uh, has a dream, and this is what gets him in trouble. He reports the dream to his brothers, and he says, I had a dream where the sun and the moon and 11 stars bowed down to me. Well, the 11 brothers understand the 11 stars to be them. Uh, they, they don't much like this, this dream that Joseph has, and they sell him into slavery. But this same language of, of sun and the moon and the 12 stars is used here, which sort of supports the idea that this could be a reference to Israel. Others would say, no, this is a reference to the church, because Christ... Uh, updates the, the, the people of God. He expands the people of God. It's, it's no longer just the, just the physical heirs of Abraham. It's now the spiritual heirs of Abraham, the people of God. The 12 apostles replaced the 12 tribes of Israel. Clearly, that's what Jesus was doing when he chose 12. And so we need to understand the woman being the church. And then there's another group of people that say, no, the one who is pregnant and gives birth to the child, who is Jesus, is Mary. Uh, this, of course, would be the, 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 uh, the interpretation of the Roman Catholic Church. And so what we're looking at is, is the Virgin Mary giving birth to, to Jesus. Now, um, if, you are, if you enjoy long uh, discussions and debates and arguments that never are ultimately resolved at least this side of heaven, you can enter into this discussion. Um, I don't particularly enjoy those so much. And I'm in the fifth camp, which says, you know, I suspect that probably all four of those ideas are true. And that part of the reason that this account is being given to us symbolically with images, with a picture, is, is because the, the picture has the ability to, to carry a little bit more freight and to deliver multiple ideas at the same time. And whether or not that fifth option is right or not, again, I, I'm not particularly invested in it, what's clear is right, the woman gives birth to a child. This is a big part of the story, right? A special, unique child is born. And... Thankfully, we have no problem, no discussion or debate identifying who the child is. The child is Jesus. The, the, the book of Revelation is a book that points to Jesus in all kinds of different ways. He is, he is described as the lamb that was slain. He is a lion. He is a conquering king. He's the, he is a bright light. Uh, here he is being described at his birth as a baby and we are told about this baby that he was born to rule and that he is going to be swept into heaven now the the born to rule part uh it, it says that that uh that this child is going to uh rule give birth to a son a male child who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter the word that is used here, rule, is a word in the Greek that can also be translated shepherd. And a shepherd, right, Christ is the good shepherd, of course. A shepherd is generally uh, relatively thoughtful, has to look out for the best interest of uh, his sheep. 
And so it's, there's, a, there's a softer side. Rule may not be the best word here. But we also have iron scepter. Uh, and this is, a, this is a, a symbol of power. Shepherds didn't have iron scepters. And so we get an image of the, the rule over the nations by this child as being one that is both uh, graceful and strong. Right? That there's, that there's love and care and there's strength and justice. And we're told that this child is swept up into heaven. That, that he is born in spite of the fact that, that, that there is evil waiting to kill him. Which brings us to the third uh, figure that we need to identify. This red dragon with seven heads, ten horns, and seven crowns. Now, by the way, uh, for those of you Tolkien fans who were wondering where Tolkien gets the idea for Smog, this red dragon who is the principal source of evil, you don't have to look any further, right? Uh, th this is biblical imagery. In the book of Psalms, the book of uh, Isaiah, in Ezekiel, in Daniel, a variety of different places, we have uh, talk of a dragon. Now, it's, it, remember, this is a picture. This is symbolism. It's not a real dragon. This dragon is being used to represent uh, Satan, the, the, our, our adversary, our enemy, evil personified. And it is, um, it is described here as a horrific red dragon with uh, you know, seven heads and, and all these crowns. Now, the seven heads likely is, is some indication that um, some have said that it, it, it's an indication of seven empires that will unfold over time. Others have said, no, the, the seven, seven is the number of perfection and completion. And so the, the fact that this dragon has seven heads is suggesting that, that evil will disguise itself as good. It will try to appear to be good, uh, but it's, it's unable to. And uh, the horns that the, that the dragon has, it's a little bit easier for us to understand. Uh, horns are always uh, a sign of power, and so we are simply being reminded that, uh, that we, we are advised not to underestimate the power, uh, the malice of evil. The, the anger and uh, the vile uh, hatred of the enemy. So, it's quite a picture uh, that we're given here of this, this woman who is standing on the moon, full of the light of the sun, who uh, has a crown of 12 stars, who gives birth to a child, who is born to rule and to reign over the nations and a dragon is waiting for the child to be born so that at the moment that the child is born uh, this this dragon will kill it and will thwart the plan uh, as i said there are lots of people who sp spend lots of time discussing and debating all the little intricacies of this picture and of this image that christ uh, gives us in this revelation through john um, I, I just, I want to be sure that the big picture is not lost, right? 
let's not, let's not miss the big message here. The big message is God showed up and, and he won. I mean, that, that's the point. In spite of the fact that evil was waiting, right? In spite of the fact that evil knew that, that there would be some effort by God because God had promised there would be an effort. God had, God had said, right? In, in the Genesis 3 account, the reason the woman knows that this is going to happen is because a curse is being given to the serpent. And the serpent is being told, you will fall, right? I am going to send one who will defeat you. And, and so we've got, that, we've got that story. We've got that promise being made. So evil knows that there will be this, this attack. And in spite of the fact that uh, evil is waiting, behind enemy lines, God plants this beachhead in, in an unthinkable way. He becomes one of us, and he does so uh, knowing that he will suffer and die, but also knowing that in that uh, he will win. Now, we're not told here. We're given, we're given no, nothing about the, the life of the baby. We're given nothing about what the baby teaches. We're given nothing about, you know, what, what his life is like, his healing, his claims. We're given nothing about the crucifixion, nothing about the resurrection. All we're told here is that the baby is born and that the baby ascends into heaven, right? He is snatched up into heaven. Well, we know enough of the story from other places to know all that, is, that happens between that. We, we know what Christ does. And so the, the reminder here is this baby's going to be born, and this baby will ascend to the throne in heaven. And so what we're told, what we're reminded of, is that Christ comes and Christ wins. Uh, God shows up okay, behind enemy lines, and he does so at great personal expense, but good prevails. The dragon falls. Jesus is victorious. That's, that is the Christmas story being delivered in Revelation 12. Now, there's more here. I mean, if, if we were going to unpack this, you know, there's a couple things worth at least noting. It's clear that from heaven's perspective, Christ is the rightful ruler of all the nations, right? That, that he's not just king of the Jews. He's not just the one to sit on the throne of David in Israel. He is the ruler of the nations. And it's also, uh, it's also just worth reminding ourselves that from heaven's perspective, Christmas is a bit of a declaration of war. Um, it, it's, we don't think of it that way because of the Luke 2 passage and Silent Night and a baby. And it, it's, just, it's portrayed differently than, a, than an attack than a stealth move by God, right, to defeat evil. But we get a bit of that from this passage. And um, I, I just think it's very encouraging, and I want to be certain that you are encouraged.